another episode of Rich State of Mind. In this episode, I'm interviewing Leon Walker Jr. He's a uh, prior command master chief, did 32 years in the Navy. Uh, very huge background in the military and his uh, life before he joined the military. I think uh, there's a lot of life lessons from this conversation. It's a very raw, uh, raw conversation as well. Uh, so I think you can anybody can get um, anything from this this episode as far as learning from your life lesson, life lessons. Do not let what happened to you in the past dictate your future, and you can come on top from it. Uh, very deep conversation, man. Oof, definitely emotional as well. Uh, thank you for listening, and please enjoy. Please visit our site at www.richstateofmind.com where we provide content on real estate, personal finances, and self-development. Share your story and information by posting a blog on our site so that the Rich State of Mind community continues to grow in knowledge. You can also follow our Instagram page at rich underscore state brand to find out about exclusive offers and discount promotions for our apparel. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast because it's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other outlets. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. And thank you for listening. Hey, Leon, thank you this uh, this evening for taking the time this evening uh, with this episode. I think this is going to be a special one. If it lasts two hours, I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, if you could please tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, from Cleveland, Ohio, uh, I have three kids. I have four guy kids. I served 32 years in the Navy, uh, 15 years out at sea, five ships. I was an RDC uh, instructor and a Navy recruiter. Been all over the world. I live in Chicago. Been here off and on since 2000. Um, I love writing. I love uh, running. I love eating good food. I love laughter. I love um, helping people. I love leading people. So I do a lot of speaking now. I do a lot of writing and I do a lot of training with people that want to become authors. Um, I do a lot of speaking to youth groups, you know, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, um, as such. So high schools, junior high schools, elementary school. So that's what I do now. I've been retired since 2015. Um, and so that's who I am in a nutshell. Okay. And can you tell us a little bit about your, your childhood and how your household was growing up? My childhood was um, middle class. I'm from East Cleveland, Ohio, and it started off really, really good. But by the ages of my parents are great people. My parents were lovely people. Um, and so it started off really good. And then at the, by the time I reached the sixth grade, my parents got divorced. My life had already started falling apart then. Um, by the time I was in the first grade, I was already molested once. Uh, by the time I was seven years old, I was already addicted to porn. Eight years old, I lost my virginity to my babysitter. And between the ages of 11 and 12, there was a male member of my family touching me. Never any kind of penetration, but was touching me. Uh, we lost our house uh, when I was in the sixth grade. Um, and I went to live with a lady for about a year. A lady that I didn't even know. So my parents, the divorce is really what started me to spiral out of control. 
prior to that, living in East Cleveland, great parents, great house for a little while. Um, we had ice skating rinks in a black neighborhood. We had swimming pools. We had a YMCA that we did use. And a lot of young men and women don't use that anymore. I was part of the Cub Scouts, the Boy Scouts, all sports. So growing up in East Cleveland, it was a really thriving place. It's not anymore. Um, but my childhood was lovely, great, ups, downs, and a lot of dysfunction too. And so combining your childhood, explain to us uh, the transition from your childhood, being a teenager, and why you wanted and or how you ended up joining the Navy. So what happened was both of my parents dropped out in the ninth grade, right? Um, but they were blue collar workers. They never talked about uh, college in our household. It was never talked about. So my father was in the army. My uncle was in the army. I had a cousin in the army. And my brother was in the Marines. So throughout my life, all I saw was the military in our household. Never talked about college. Nobody ever did. All I saw was military jackets, um, helmets, guns, my father's old ribbons. And I knew then at eight, nine years old that I was going to join the Excuse me, the military. But the fact still remained that I mentally I couldn't, I was a slow learner. So I picked up stuff slow, if at all. Uh, so I struggled with tests. I struggled in elementary school. I could spell, but I struggled with every other topic. I struggled through junior high school and high school. So I had a problem. I started working out at nine years old, doing push-ups, sit-ups, doing pull-ups, running, uh, lifting some weights, because my father used to be in the house talking about the army and doing push-ups and sit-ups. So I wanted to always emulate my dad. My uncle used to always call cadence, just, just, you know, general conversation. So I wanted to emulate my uncle. I, I had great role models as men. I had great role, role models as women. But I was de derailed early in my, in my life because of the molestation and being raped and things like that and my addiction to porn. But on the educational piece, if my mother made sure we went to school. My father was working at Ford. So the school was there, but it was never, we never talked about college. So my mind was made up to go in the military. However, I couldn't pass the test. I couldn't pass many tests. I didn't, I wasn't good at taking tests. I wasn't good at studying. So I knew, I knew early on at nine years old, I had nine years, actually seven years or eight years to get myself together for the military. Um, Cause I joined at 17 years old. I took the test five times. I failed it four times. And on the fifth time I passed by one point. So I took the test the first time in the ninth grade. I wasn't supposed to, I was always a short kid, but I was thick. So I didn't look like I was, 14. You have to be, I think, 16 with your parents' consent. So I took it in ninth grade, I scored a six. I took it in 10th grade, I scored 11. I took it in 11th grade, I scored a 19. And then I took, you can only take it so many times. But my senior year, I took it twice and I scored a, a 30. And the last time I took it, I scored a 31. So that's all I needed to join the Navy. And that was it. It started from there. And the, the lowest score was 30 back then. So that, yeah. that shows how the Navy's progressed. Cause I remember when I joined, it was like 35. I think when me and Amir joined, it was like 35. And I remember I went to recruiting, uh, recruiting, and then I think at the time it was 50. Uh, yeah. So throughout the years, it has changed uh, because like you have OSs right now that I remember back in the day, there, were, there was OSs that were cutting 30s, but now like you can't do that. <laughs> right, right, it changes. So it changes based on the needs of the Navy. I think uh, right around COVID, Navy is normally tasked with putting in 35,000 people per year. And I think it went up last year to like 44. So they, it's not that they went away from quality people. They just had to lower the score to get more people in. So uh, the quantity increased. So the quality kind of took a hit. But yeah, I get what you're saying. You know, the scores go up and down all the time based on the needs of the Navy. Uh, so break down your experience when you joined the Navy in 1984, all the way until you retired in 2015. 
Uh, what was your experience in the Navy and what did you see change about the Navy throughout those 32 years? Uh, my experience, so my experience, when I joined the Navy, I was terrified. Um, growing up in East Cleveland, we had about, it was predominantly black neighborhood, but we had probably four white families. So I, I come in the Navy, uh, which is predominantly white with, um, you know, I wasn't, wasn't prejudiced, wasn't racist, anything like that. I wasn't worried about that. My uncle wanted me to join the army because he said there's more blacks in the army and they'll take up for you to look out for you. But he was wrong. I had white guys, Latino guys, like uh, um, Asian guys looking out for me in the Navy. So it wasn't about a racist thing. Um, I, quick story. My mother got me my first job. I was eight years old. My mother worked in a bar. She's a bartender. And I, I, she woke me up that morning. She said, hey, you want to come and work with me? I didn't want to go, of course. But she said, just come on, you know. So I get in there. Now, this is a Saturday morning after the Friday night party where all the adults had did all the drinking, the liquor, the cigarette butts. The band was in there. It was filthy. And she said, I need you to help me clean this bar up. And so I'm like, Ma, I can't. I'm looking around. And she said, just look at it, how it is now, and, and see how you can make it better. And that's all she told me. And that stuck with me for the rest of my life. I cleaned the bar, but it took me hours. And when her boss came in, he said, hey, you know, my mother's name is Sylvia. He said, Sylvia, I can't pay anybody to, for all of this work that was done. She said, no, my son did it. And he looked at me and he said, wow, young man, you got work ethic. And that stuck with me. And so I was always fearful of going to the Navy, um, moving forward, leaving my family, going to a um, corporation that was predominantly white. I was fearful because I was leaving my family. I didn't know. It wasn't about race or anything like that. I just wasn't ready to, and then my uncle told me that I need to join the army because more black people, I need to be around more black people, they're gonna support me. So it shook me, it, I was fear, I was fearful. Um, so anyway, um, I, he offered me my first job and I worked. I've been working since I was eight years, old, so eight years old. So I knew then, I said, if I can just get in the Navy, my work ethic will take me far. It wasn't about the scores. Although I couldn't pass the test, I finally passed it. After I passed it, I was good. Um, I got into the Navy in 19, I, November 20, June of 1983, I joined the Navy. I went to boot camp on uh, November 21st of 1983. Uh, what I saw in the Navy when I first came in, they could have beards. There were a lot more tattoos. It wasn't that uh, we didn't have that clean image back then. It was all about, you know, um, keeping the sea lanes open, going out to sea, passing inspections, drinking, womanizing. The more you drank, the more popular you became. The more women you had, the more popular you became. So the Navy that you all are seeing now is a very much cleaned up, um, military cleaned up Navy based on what I saw coming up. I saw the shifts left and right, uh, right and left, ups and downs. Before that, say being in the 70s, there was a lot of racism in the Navy. There's a lot of race wars. There's a lot of drugs. There was a lot of fighting. When I came in and started cleaning it up, Admiral Zumwalt was around then. So the beards in 1984, when I came in, you can, uh, you, if you made E4, you can wear a beard. But I think around 8045, they went away. So he started cleaning our faces up. Um, the uniforms were in like in a in a sense trying to change later on. That can, that did come to fruition too. But what I saw was a shift of being more professional. It went from being more of like a war fighting type of military to being corporate America, slowly but surely. And so up until like it started really changing like in the late '90s and 2000s, where they tried to mirror corporate corporate America, started to set people up for success that were getting out to prepare us. So. When we're in the Navy, make sure we, we want to make sure our jobs match what was in corporate America. So I saw the changes of the height, weight standards changing. A lot of people when I came in had big stomachs, big beards, smoking cigarettes inside the skin of the ship, smoking everywhere. So smoking cessation started was one of those things that started. You started pushing out the Navy. 
uh, uh, um, abusing alcohol was those things that they started pushing out of the Navy. When I came in, there was, you can get high on heroin, cocaine, marijuana three times until they, before they kicked you out. And then years later, they went to the zero tolerance. So the change I saw was a lot of racism went away. Although people say, oh, there's still racism, whatever. But it was more like um, hidden. It wasn't, it wasn't as outspoken. People weren't, weren't as outspoken as they were in the 60s and 70s. So a lot of changes took place. And they saw a lot of black men becoming leaders in the military. You saw a lot of um, Filipinos, a lot of Latinos becoming leaders and getting promoted more. And before I came in, I used to always complain about blacks not getting promoted. That was another thing that worried me when I went into the recruiting office. Um, there was a picture on the wall with the ranks from E1 to E9. And I looked at the top and I said, I asked my recruiter, I said, what is that? He said, that's a master chief. He said, you know what, man, don't worry about that. You would never make master chief. Furthest you probably get in the Navy as an E6. And that hit me hard and that stuck with me. Just like my mother told me to look at the bar and see what, what it looks like now and see how I can make it look better. Work ethic. And then he told me what I couldn't do as far as making Master Chief. And I would ultimately make Master Chief in 06. So there was a lot of changes I saw, you know, with the uniforms, the beards, the, the weight standards, the professionalism, the verbal abuse or, or you know, with, with, um, lack of uh, trying to prevent verbal abuse, trying to prevent racism. So they put a lot of um, policies and procedures in place to clean the Navy up, and they, they, they've done a great job of it. Uh, who, was, uh, who was mentoring you throughout the years? So I had a, you know what, I was always, my first mentor, and I talk about this in my book, Broken. My, my, when my father left our house in 1979, it was me, my mother, my sister, my brother, and um, when you lose, when you when the man leaves a home, you leave a lot of you lose a lot of structure. You lose a lot of of stability. You lose a lot of discipline. And so when my father left, I was all over the place. I was staying out late, 10, 11 years old. I was running the streets. I was stealing. You know, I was watching porn. I was doing whatever I wanted to do uh, because my mother wasn't there. She was at work. You know, she did what she could do. As a, she's a great mom, but I had a lot of free time. So one day, this guy came into our house, and I didn't know who he was. Um, and he was a gay man, right? I'm the type of person, I've, I've never judged anybody. Um, and the, my mother said, hey, this is Charles, he's gonna be living with us. And so you guys get to know him and respect him. We always have respect for our elders and any, our elders and anybody else that we met. And so Charles became my first mentor and he was gay. It wasn't anything about touching, it wasn't sexual, it wasn't any of that. Because of him, I was able to make it through the sixth, seventh and eighth grade because he taught me about life. He taught me about the intricacies about life. He taught me about the different facets of life. He taught me about the different perspectives of life. And so he really helped me get through my mother, my parents' divorce. He really helped me get through us losing our house. When we lost our house, my family was split up. I was told to move with a lady that I didn't know for a year. My sister moved to another lady that I didn't know that she didn't know. And my mother and brother moved into a hotel. So Charles is his name. He was my first mentor. Throughout the Navy, I've always had great people in my life, in my corner. They saw more potential than I saw myself. And that's why I'm type. I'm the type of mo um, mentor and I like to develop people now because I know how to look into people and bring more out of them. Great leaders take people where they want to go, not where they, where, where they need to go, not necessarily where they want to go. So I had a big thing with that. I was always wanting to take people to different high, higher heights of uh, success, um, even though they didn't think they could make it. So that was that's what was poured into me. I have a lot of great men in my life that helped me get to where I am and women that helped me get to where I am today. And so throughout your career, um, I know you, ex you explained earlier 
uh, when we talked that you've had you had some challenging times, you know, getting LOIs, having issues. What made you want to turn your career around, your life around, say, hey, I need to I need to make this change. It needs to happen now. So there was there was two things. Uh, I, I became a Navy recruiter in 1992. Um, I, I was in Pensacola and um, I failed a test and I got set back. And it was kind of a joke to me. But when I saw my class graduating class leading before me and my goal was to get to Cleveland and be a recruiter, when I saw those orders going away, I said, you know, what? I got to stop playing around because I wasn't taking the Navy serious. Um, but I did finally take it serious. My drinking got worse when I got to Cleveland. Um, I was doing well the first few years. I was recruited quarter. I was recruited year. My drinking got worse. I became very cocky and very arrogant because Cleveland is a town that loves two things. More things, but mainly two things. They love athletes and they love the military. So I was always catered to in the Cleveland, in Cleveland, the Cleveland area as a recruiter. I got what I wanted, free food, free liquor, and the, the women were plentiful. So um, the one shift I had was when I became recruited a year, um, started drinking more, uh, didn't take my life serious, didn't respect myself. We always talk about self-love, but we hardly ever talk about self-respect. And I was okay. missing that self-respect. I was missing that self-love. My self-love, my lack of self-love stems from my childhood when my mother left us or gave us away. And I say I lost my mother three times when we lost the house, when she started getting high on crack for about 30 years, my whole Navy career. And then when she ultimately died, me and my mother, my mother and I were very close, very tight, but I lost a lot when she got hooked on drugs. So anyway, moving forward, I, um, I'm a recruiter, doing all these great things. I'm drinking a lot. I'm in the streets a lot. I didn't have any respect for my respect for myself or the people, the women that I was encountering. And so I got engaged with the lady. Um, and that was a time for me to change my life because she was wholesome. She was pure. Uh, she had character. She had integrity. I wasn't ready for that, bro. I wasn't. I was used to being a street dude. I was used to being with street women. And now I meet this woman that's wholesome and, and has character and integrity. I didn't know what to do. We got engaged. I said, you know what? We'll get married. She wanted to get married. We got married. I wanted to get married. I wasn't ready to be married. I was, I was never groomed to be a groom, not taking anything away from my brothers, my fathers, but my uncles, they were great men in my life. But I, I didn't take heed to their teachings of being a great husband, a great boyfriend, or even a great father. And so I failed at that. I got engaged and I cheated um, because I wasn't ready to be with a wholesome, um, down to earth woman that, that, that didn't cheat. And so there I am, me, I, I, I'm all for this lady and then I wasn't ready. I shouldn't, I, I wasn't, I didn't deserve her. So I cheated and that was another shift for me. Um, I started waking up, I said, man, you can't do this. Then we had my first child. And so I'm all over the place, man. I'm dysfunctional. Um, I'm gaining weight now because I cheated. I got caught, I got another woman pregnant. I went from 190 pounds to 245 pounds in one year. I went from 4% body fat to like 35, 36%. I practically grew out of my uniforms. And so I got a letter of instruction, my first one in recruiting duty. It put me on a fitness program and I transferred from, from recruiting duty in 1996. That was my first turnaround. I get to the ship, um, 96, 1996, I'm doing okay. 97, I went sailor quarter. 98, nothing. I'm still doing okay. 99, I went sailor quarter. In 1999, a friend of mine, um, David J. Hoople, he's a retired lieutenant commander now. He stopped me on the quarterback. He said, Leon, you, you know, you're doing a lot of stuff on the stuff on the ship, but you're not doing enough. You're wasting your potential. You're wasting your time. Look at me. We're passing you up. Everybody's getting the EPs. Everybody's getting the sailor year. Everybody's getting making chief. Everybody's making LDO. And here you are, this huge personality, this great work, work ethic, because I did have those two things. 
personality and work, and work ethic, but I wasn't doing anything. I was just cruising in the Navy. And he woke me up. I made a, I made a, I made a vow to myself. I made a promise to myself in January 1999. By January 2000, I was going to be sailor year. Um, and I was going to go as high as I could. And I did. I went all the way to Atlantic Fleet Sea Sailor Year, where they select one out of four to be meritoriously promoted to chief. So that was my turnaround where a young man, a guy my age told me that I wasn't doing anything. I was pretty much, I was pretty much a piece of crap. I was lazy. And a lot of people, don't, they have potential, but they don't use it until somebody say, hey, look, but it depends on how you take their constructive criticism. I took it well, and that turned my life around. So um, in 2000, I made chief and I never looked back the next 15 years. Uh, so throughout the years of you being in the Navy, you talked about uh, the traumas that you went through as a child. How did you address those traumas, you know, like the molestation, like the rape, like the alcoholism and the you know, addiction to drugs? How did you address those issues in order for you to, to be successful throughout your career? First of all, I had to realize that they were holding me back. My addiction to porn was so intense that I was spending hundreds of dollars just watching it, just watching it, just watching it, buying movies, buying movies. And it was depleting my soul. It was depleting my spirit. It was affecting me at work. I couldn't think straight. I couldn't concentrate. It was affecting my marriage because I didn't want to be physically with my wife, you know? And so the alcohol, the porn, those two things together, music, the clubs, women, all those things together, that's what consumed me because I was, there was a time where I didn't believe in God. I believed in the devil uh, because the devil gave me what I wanted in life. Also what I thought I wanted and need, needed in life. What he was doing was feeding my childhood, um, my childhood issues, which was my shadow traits. My shadow traits were lust and greed, lust and greed. Shadow traits are things that are not permanently wired to our personality. They can be changed, they can be stamped out. But those are things that made me feel good. Those are things that made me feel comfortable. Those are things that the greed and the lust and the women and the alcohol and the porn, those are things that made me feel important. Being married didn't make me feel important. Even being a father didn't make me feel important. I lost that, you know, because I was always going back to my childhood, the things that happened to me in, in my childhood. I could have been a child molester, but I'm not. I wasn't. I could have I could have touched little boys, but I didn't. I could have raped little girls, but I didn't. I could have been gay, but I wasn't. What I chose to do was being uh, a cheater, a liar, a deceiver. So all my issues moving forward stemmed from my childhood because I never got therapy. I didn't get therapy until I turned 50 years old. So my thing was to, um, I just got tired of being unsuccessful. I got tired of people passing me up. I got tired of people looking at me like I wasn't nothing because I wasn't, that was the truth. I wasn't about anything. I was just going through the motions. When I made first class in 1991, I stayed in first class for nine years, man, nine years. With all this potential that I have, all, all of this greatness that I had in my life, I wasn't doing anything. I got lazy. I became complacent. You realize in nine years, how many times you go up for chief and, and don't make board or fail the test, don't get promoted, how much money you're actually losing? You know, I wasn't fulfilling my potential at all. I wasn't fulfilling my, the, my own wish I had to, to, to keep my parents impressed and keep my, my, the, the, my legacy going forward. I didn't do that. And so how did you apply the things that you learned towards being a parent? So um, the things that I learned towards being a parent, uh, it, it comes in many ways. And I'm going back to your other question. I got tired of, of not being a good dad. I got tired of not being a good sailor. I got tired of not being a good leader. I got tired of saying one thing and doing another. So I had to really do a lot of soul searching and say, you know what? I was a fake dude. 
I was lying. I had to call myself out. You know, you lying, you know, you're doing this, you know, you're fake, bro. And then it hurt. It, it When you call yourself out and, and you really call yourself out and you feel it, that's when you start to change. That's when you get the momentum. That's when you start to work on your character and your integrity. That's when you start to learn how to tell the truth to people and, and take constructive criticism. I was a very narcissistic dude for a long time. I'm talking probably 30 years. I didn't realize this until a few years ago. But I was, I was living a dream of somebody else. I always put people above me. I always thought that I was slow and stupid. Until I sat down and said, you, you're a husband, you're a father, you got to do better. Because I was not uh, representing what a husband or father was. I wasn't representing what a, a good sailor was. So I had to take on the ethics, the integrity, the character of what these good men around me were telling me or what, how they were showing me. I had great examples. I had great examples before the Navy. I had great examples while I was in the Navy but I wasn't using it. And then I'm like, you know, if I'm sitting here being this example for these young black men or these young black women or these, you know, white, white men and white women, all races, Latino, American Indian, Filipino, I'm gonna be an example. I, I have to just do right. I can't expect people to listen to me if I'm saying one thing and I'm going out here chasing women and drinking. People see the things that you are, the things that you do. You know, they, if you're fake, they're gonna call you out. If, even, if, even if they don't call you out. You're going to feel the people that don't trust you. And I don't want people to stop trusting me. So I had to start reading things. I had to start learning. I had to start wanting to be a better example for my kids, a better example for my sailors, a better example for my, my ship, you know? And so that was, those are things that I practiced. Those are things that I honed in on um, to, to, to be a real person, to be a genuine person, because I was just tired. Of, I was fake. I was fake for a long time. I think you, uh, so when it came to, when it comes to being a parent, one thing that I've realized is that I talked to my father about this a lot. I've, I've actually been blessed to have a good relationship with my father because for him, he didn't have a good relationship with his father. Uh, my, fa my grandfather was uh, born in the forties, uh, was a doctor. Uh, so, you know, imagine he went through Vietnam. So you can imagine some of the racism and uh, some of the trials and tribulations he went through, going through Vietnam and then trying to be a doctor around that time in the 60s and in the 70s. Yeah, hard. So so tough tough as nails type of guy, no nonsense, right? Trying to raise my, my father, very intellectual man. <clears throat> and so my father wanted to, he wanted to balance between being tough, but also expressing love. And so I tried to, uh, so that was his better up from his from his dad. Right. And so for me, what I took from my father was, OK, I'm going to make sure not only I'm going to make sure that with my son uh, and now my daughter and when we have a daughter on the way, not only are we going to expl explain to them, show them love and discipline, but also provide a better lifestyle than what we had growing up from America. Right. 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 Uh, so you took it. <clears throat> you took your life. It, it was what it was. Right. You growing up, you couldn't control too much of it at eight, nine, ten years old. Right. And you and you did. And you did better. There's obviously some things that you wish you could have did better, but right. uh, you still did take what you had and, and made the situation better for your kids. And that's something that I want uh, the listeners to understand. Uh, don't make the same mistakes that your, your parents made, especially if you witnessed it and you hated that that part of your childhood, <clears throat> because your, your child is probably not going to like that situation as well. And one thing that I've learned growing uh, growing up and then now having my own son Kids don't want to hear, I'm sorry, daddy's just addicted to weed and cocaine. And that's why the lights are not on. And that's why you're cold. And that's why you don't have food. Like, right. 
they don't want to hear that. They, they, they're tired of being hungry. They're tired of having busted clothes. Yeah. You know? So, <clears throat> or being cold. <clears throat> and, and I had some, and I had a humbling, I've had a humbling uh, childhood as well, which is why I was uh, driven. But for me, uh, it was to not be obsessed with the drive, not to be obsessed with trying to do compensate for my childhood to where now other people can't relate to me where I'm pushing right. my son like over the top. And he's like, yeah, yeah. yeah this, I'm not, we're not in the hood. You know, we're not right. in that, yeah. in, that war zone environment. You can, you can still drive me, but it doesn't have to be where it's like, you got to do it. Like your life depends on it. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you don't want to overcompensate. And I did that to my kids. I did that to my two sons. I didn't do that as much to my daughter because I wasn't around her enough. I'm around her now, but the fact that I cheated that, uh, the chance to be with my daughter, I made a, a horrible decision to not see her probably for the first five years or six years of her life because I was afraid of losing my marriage. My wife didn't know anything about that, but I made a stupid decision trying to appease my wife and she wasn't even thinking that way. I never I apologized to my wife uh, and her parents, but I never apologized to my daughter um, when it happened because she didn't know that how she got here. I cheated with her mom, you know? So, um, I was overbearing and overcompensating with my sons because I was push, 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 living my life vicariously through them. I wanted my sons to be boxers. I wanted them to be football players. They didn't want to box. They played football, then they quit. And so I had to allow them to find their own ways. I couldn't live my life through them and push them in a direction that they don't want to go in. When you do that, you break people. When you do that, you lose communication. When you do that, you sever communication with your yeah. children. You do that with, you, with your spouse, you sever communication. So I had to pull back some. Uh, my father was never told that he, that, uh, his father never told him he loved him. My father never told me he loved me. He showed us. His father showed him love by having utilities, by having food, by having a vehicle. My father did the same thing for us by getting me and my sister out of the dysfunctional household that we were in, taking us to court so we didn't go to foster care and showing us love. We had clothes. We had food. There was a time where I didn't have any clothes. I wore the same pair of pants in school for about a year, right? And so, yeah, my mother couldn't afford to have us live with her when we, when we when I moved with, away from the lady that I was living with that I didn't know, um, my mother got us back and it was four of us in a one bedroom apartment. I slept on the floor. I slept on the floor from probably the first grade up until the 10th grade because I peed in the bed. My parents couldn't keep me in the bed. It's not their fault. I found out at 50 years old, the reason why I peed in the bed is because I was abused. I never thought it was abuse, but that's just how I process it or didn't process, I suppressed it. So when I'm retiring in January, 2015, I go through therapy and she said, all the, uh, asked me these questions. And that's when I found that I was abused. So I slept on the floor from first grade up until the 10th grade because I couldn't stay in the bed. I peed too much. And then when we lost the house, I did have a bed for a year moving with the lady that my mother, mother moved me with. Then we moved back with my mother after we go to court and I sleep back on the floor because there's four of us in the house and it's a one bedroom. So me and my sister on the floor, my brother get to bed, he's the oldest child. And then we get back to my father and after we go to court, now he, he gets a one bedroom because that's all he can afford for me, him and my sister. I go from the bed to the couch. So people see me now when I go visit my friend, first thing I do is sit on the floor. It's comfortable for me, you know? But it made, it was, it made me very humble in the experience that I had. And it made me gr very grateful for the small things that I had in life. But I'm I'm a, such a driven and passionate and 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 ambitious type of person. My kids had a much easier way to go in life, so they don't understand the hood mentality. They don't understand not having a bed or food or 
or electricity and water and lights, like you said. They don't understand not having cable. So I'm like, you know, y'all need to be grateful. Blah, 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 blah. And I pushed too hard. And it, it, it hurt my relationship with my kids to this day. We're getting better at it, but it's going to take some time. Because I was overbearing and I was overcompensating because of what I didn't have. I wanted them to have. What I didn't do, I wanted them to do. What I did, I wanted them to do better. So I pushed too hard. And people do that in relationships too. Yeah, and personally, I can I can um, relate, whether it was from my, my previous marriage or even the relationship I have with, um, with my parents. Uh, when we have our, we have our expectations of people, right? And when we, when they don't meet that expectation, we can kind of treat it, we can do two things with it. Um, we can try to pour as much motivation and, and thoughts into that person, but it, it's only for a little bit. It, it, it only gets them to do probably one task. And then, and then it, it you know, dis disintegrates. Or <clears throat> what happens when you do that, you know, the relationship continues to uh, deteriorate. And then now it's this, this friction, this uncomfortableness every time you're around each other. And so I've had to learn to do that with my family. Uh, I'm, I'm really big on my family being, I'm, they don't have to be prosperous. They don't have to be wealthy, but at least just being good, right? Right. I, I really, I pride myself, especially as a man, being able to be a provider, being able to, uh, to figure out, uh, identify issues and figure them out, right? That's, that's my role. And so when I see my certain part, people in my family uh, going through, through issues that I'm just like, man, like we used to go through this growing up. Why haven't you fixed this yet? It, it, was, it was causing a wedge in my, uh, between my family members and myself to where it was just uncomfortable setting. And so I had to figure out a way to love. I'm not going to say, so I used to say love from a distance, but that's not really right. More so love and uh, love and maybe, maybe love and uh, show my love in doses. It, it tried to show my love in different ways. Okay. So my, the way I've been showing love is, is very uh, abrasive to them and it is uh, offensive. And how can I still show my love without offending uh, and still helping? Because for me, I can't watch people that I love hurt and, and go through even if it's the same they, they keep doing the same thing over and over again i can't watch them and not say anything be like well that's just you know who doing what they do you know always you know getting evicted <clears throat> right right and so i had to learn oh go ahead go ahead go ahead so as a father and a leader the roles are the same right you don't go to work and take off your father clothes you don't come at home and take off your leadership outfit you have to love people uh, unconditionally. Doesn't mean that you have to give them money. Doesn't mean that you have to give them a ride. It can mean that you just talk to them or you say hi to them or be polite. You know, a lot of times those people that are having, they have those issues, they are hurting on the inside like I was and never got help, never got therapy, never had it awake, an outlet or a way to release it. You know, <clears throat> so I feel you on that. I'm the same way. I was really aggressive and abrasive to people that I didn't that used to make me upset about they're doing the same thing in life. I'm like, well, dude, you're better now, but you were once them. I wasn't a, I wasn't a crackhead, but I was an alcoholic. You know, I wasn't, I didn't smoke weed, but I smoked cigarettes and cigars. I cursed people out. I came to work late. I came to work and I didn't shave. Well, who am I to get mad at them? So my thing was I had to realize, maybe you didn't have those issues that I had. I get it. But we also have to be understanding. We're, no, we're not better than anybody else. We all have issues. Your issue might be, drinking coffee. Your issues might be you're too stern. Your issues might be you're just too regimented. 
right? And that may not be a good thing. That could rub off on people that when you come around and like, oh, here he, here come Anthony again. You know, we got to tighten up. We got to straighten up. You know, so you have to look at yourself through their eyes back at them. How do how do they how do you when you sit across from them and you talk to them or put yourself in, over here and looking back at Anthony and I'm talking to you, I'm complaining. And you just you like, I don't want to hear. What are you doing? You know, how are you showing it? Do you care? Do you not care? You know, and then what happens the next day to go commit suicide? But they just talked to you the day before. How would you feel? So I had to teach myself those things and be very grateful uh, and understanding and, and enjoy the fact that people want to come to me with their issues. I think Colin Powell said that the day that people stop coming to you uh, with about their issues is the day that you lose your people as a leader. <clears throat> so as a husband, as a father, as a leader, you take on everything. That's a role. That's who we are. That's how we're built. You know, and so I get what you're saying, um, but I had to teach myself how to understand people that uh, had the same issues that, that I had, and I'm not any better than them. They may come out of it slower than I did, but they're coming out. You know, so when I hit the ground running, I was I took off and never looked back, but I forgot how I used to be, and that was wrong. I guess the happy medium is identifying, okay, these are the things. Uh, all right, identifying a standard that makes sense, right? Standard's not too high, but it's definitely not too low. And then right. in between that, you know, picking out the weeds and the weeds are excuses, right? Or, uh, or people using uh, certain, certain opportunities to not really uh, succeed how they can and to get extract the, as much potential out of people as possible. And so that's one leadership, uh, I guess, thing I've put in my toolbox is identifying how to do that without coming off as uh, that, that robot. I used to be, uh, my last deployment <clears throat> where one of the sailors, they, they called me a, a robot. I, I, I act like I run on batteries because I would be, I'd be up from three, zero three to zero seven. I eat chow and then eight to 11. I take a nap from 13 to 13 to 16. I get up PT and then I'd be up from 19 to 22. And then I do it all over again. So I probably average like four hours, four to six hours of sleep, but just sporadically, because I would make sure I was there throughout the, the peak hours of the day, or, you know, when it was, things was really popping off. Right. Uh, but I noticed during that deployment, I I might have been more efficient, like on paper, right? Okay, we're doing higher in, in our uh, inspections or our quality assurance, but I was losing my relationship with the sailors. And so I had to figure out a way to tie that back in. Um, because okay great on paper you could be great and that's something that i had learned when i first checked on board truman i had a I had a senior chief i'll never forget him for, for infamous reasons i'll never forget him but he did he did show me some things that some leadership things i needed to keep but one thing he showed me was it is not good enough to just be effective on paper you have to be influential to the, these individuals because these sailors or these people that you are impacting because it's our lives uh, we are in the military, you know, and for our experiences, the Navy, uh, you are around these people, probably you're around these people more than their family. Yeah. You would They're impact their day to day. They're your family, actually. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I'm, I'm around you when you're brushing your teeth, taking a shower, eating, using the head, working, watching movies. We're around each other all the time. And uh, your mental stability uh is on my shoulders. I, I impact that, and I I you impact their the the decision if they want to stay in the navy or not. What do they want to be when they grow up? Because a lot of these kids they're still trying to figure out what they want to be, and so yeah. 
And so you find yourself uh, pouring into them, but you want to make sure you're pouring the right things into them and you're not like what you could, in a, you know, by mistake due to your kids, pouring your traumas from, let's just say, when you first joined the Navy. Well, uh, well, that was what was done to me, right? So this is the way we should be doing things and understand that I need to adapt and be better than the past of how things were done, either in my childhood or when I first uh, joined the service. Yeah, and you pass it forward. Uh, and, and this is not just in the Black families, it's in all families. That It's called intergenerational transmission of family violence, whether it's physical or verbal. I was passed that forward because my father was verbally abusive. I became verbally abusive. And that's why I told your wife I got those two letters of instruction because I was verbally abusive. Nobody ever stopped me. I had a white guy and my ex-o said, you know what? You're a doggone good seeing chief. Just stop cursing so much because my mouth was foul. I was flapping off and talking about people and putting people down. I had to literally, we always talk about, we always make use this term, well, put yourself in their shoes. No, I now I, I really do that. Like if I want to understand you, <clears throat> I need to say Anthony's from here. This is what his father's about. It comes from knowing your sailors. When you, when you meet a sailor, you sit down for the first time, you do a thorough interview on them. And as a CMC, I interviewed every sailor on my first ship, USS Lassen, in 2007. I interviewed everybody. It took me months to do it, but I need to know two or three things about them. You know, how, what makes them move? What slows them down? What makes them happy? What makes them sad? It took a long time, but I was trying to perfect my leadership and understanding people. Leadership is all about people. It's all about people. As a, as a father, as a husband, and you know this, as a, as a chief, it's all about knowing your people, what they want, what they need. Everybody, I don't care who you are, everybody wants to be important in some kind of way. You might want to be an important father, a husband, a brother, a chief, you whatever. Everybody wants to be important. Everybody wants to feel important. Everybody wants to feel like they can, they can bring something to the table. So what I did as a CMC as well as a leader, I gave everybody buy-in. If we had a meeting in the wardroom, I look around, I don't ask the lieutenants or my captain asks lieutenants or the XO or the chiefs or senior. I ask the most junior person in that room, well, what do you think? And they'll go, ooh, they weren't ready. But you know what happened at the next meeting? They had something ready and they felt important. And then after the meeting, they go, Matthew, that was pretty cool. You, you included us. We never, we never been included. Never. You know, so leadership comes in many forms and facets of life, come from, from life. Um, you can do, you, you got to be very creative as a leader, very creative. Um, and I know that you said you remember that one scene to you for infamous reasons, but he did show you some things. But yeah, you can't just be effective on paper. And the, the, the routine that you had, that was the same routine that I had because I was going, going, going. So I would take, I called them siestas. And Rivera, I talked to Rivera about that. We started doing siestas on a ship. And then you wake up at 1800 and everybody else is like this, but you like, because I went and got my two hours of sleep. But my sailors didn't understand why I had so much energy, why I was moving like I had batteries attached to my back. So when they started doing it, taking CS, they understood. I had to understand that I can't be selfish and keep this to myself. I had to understand. Understand their background. I had to understand that they they may too may have been molested. They may they their parents may be may have been. Uh, divorced. Their mother may have been a crackhead. Their father may have been an alcoholic. I had to understand these things about my people so that I can relate to them better. But I feel you on what you were saying. Yeah. And so um, with your, all the knowledge that you've gained throughout the years, 
and it's your definitely your experiences. Uh, we talked about how you wrote, you wrote three books. Um, what are the name of those three books? And then we'll you know break down the first book. The first book is called Broken: uh, Survival Instincts of a Child, and that's all about my childhood from ages five to seventeen when I joined the Navy. The second book is was uh, um, an ebook. I think it's a forty-three page ebook. It's called Keeping Kids Safe from Porn. My third book, um, matter of fact, I got it here, um, Love Ship. This is all about relationships. I don't know if you can see it, all about relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, um, the good, the bad, the ugly, my days of cheating, lying, deceiving, everything is in there. And I'm working on my fifth book right now, my fourth book. Uh, it's another relationship book called The Five Loveless Traits. I know people talk about the five love languages, but I wanted to write a book the opposite of that. I'm an opposite thinker type of guy because I don't want to go with the status quo. I don't want to be average or mediocre. So I read the book called The Five Love Languages. And now I'm reading, writing a book called The Five Loveless Traits. What's that? People, so have you ever heard of the love languages? Yes. Yeah, the five love languages. Okay. Words, words of affirmation. There yes. you go. Okay, so stop right there, right? What's the opposite of words of affirmation? Just think of any word. Verbal abuse. There you go. So that's a loveless language. That's a loveless trait. Because if you if you you got the um, words of affirmation, it's a good thing. That's beautiful, right? But verbal abuse is the opposite of that. So we don't talk about we don't write books on, you know, the five loveless languages or the five loveless traits. Mm-hmm. So this five love languages we know: acts of service, physical touch, communication, gifts, words of affirmation. Oh, those sound so beautiful and lovely. Yeah. Okay, now let's talk about acts of disservice. Let's talk about people that have been married for five years and they're not touching each other anymore. They don't kiss anymore. Let's talk about people that have been married for two years and they don't communicate. Let's talk about you as a chief. Don't communicate with your sailors properly because you're going, going, going. You got a battery. You're clicking, clicking, clicking. Oh, shoot. My sailors missed me. I haven't talked to them in three days. Right? Um... What was the opposite of it was a communication. It was um, lack of communication. Um, the opposite physical of touch. physical touch, right? Untouched, you know, not giving out gifts, you know? So I'm right. The opposite of what the five love languages are, because we do have the opposites. What was passed down from your grandfather to your father to you, you had that until you say, oh, you know what? Wow. You know, I have a great relationship with my father. Thank God I can talk to him about these things. But what about what he didn't get from his father? You know, there was a lack of communication. There was a lack of understanding. There was no acts of service. It could have been something, you know? Um, Yeah, so I'm talking about the opposite of the love languages, the languages that we don't have, but we use to hurt other people as a narcissistic type of person. Don't want to give back to people, people that are selfish, people that are stingy, right? So that's my, my fourth book. And my fifth book is my actual second memoir, that comes out on Veterans Day. So Broken is my memoir number one and it's called One Point is my memoir number two. It's a follow-up of Broken. But yeah, the um, relationship stuff, I'm talking about the five loveless traits, you know, verbal abuse, uh, aside from communicating properly, you know, improperly. That's what got me in trouble in 04 when I got my first LOI or 05, you know? So yeah, working on my fifth book now. And where can people buy, purchase these books? My books can be purchased on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, 
uh, Google Reads, um, Goodreads, um, anywhere you can buy a book. My books are all over um, the distribution centers. And uh, as you were talking, you just inspired me to write a book about fatherhood, man. So, see, there you go, bro. And that's very important because it's needed. And you think about it, and I'll help you. It's not hard. You sit down and think about you go in your nice room, get your coffee while, while your wife is going shopping or whatever, and you just talk about fatherhood. You, it's, key, it's a key thing that you start from your grandfather. What was passed down to your father? What was not passed down to your father? What was passed down to you? What you can pass down to your son? Good, bad, ugly. When it's, when it's bad and ugly, what did you do to fix it? How did you overcome it? When it's good, how can you make it better? I failed as a father, bro. Um, and even recently I failed as a father because I, you know, I, I <clears throat> would get upset sometimes and not be so understanding. Old school way of, of raising kids does not work. They're not receptive to it. Only time it works is if the kid has an old soul and even then they're like, yeah, nowadays we scream at people. It's like they curl up in the ball. But when we got screamed at, we cried and we came out like matter. You know what I'm saying? You, you, you scream at these kids, they cry and they, they don't come out of it. They go, they go, they want to hug or they want to go do drugs or smoke weed or pop pills. When we cry, when we got yelled at, when we got spanked, we cried, <laughs> but we like tough. We felt tough. We didn't curl up in the ball. And then we, we couldn't even cry. We were told you can't cry, crying for little girls. You know, so yeah, I guess yeah. stop crying. I'll give you something to cry about. I give you something to cry about, right? And then it helped me that hurt me as a man growing up because I probably didn't, I probably went 10 years without crying. I was afraid to cry. So yeah, uh, my books are all over Amazon, Barnes Noble, and wherever they're distributing books. But I will help you when she's ready to start writing your book about fatherhood. Definitely. So before I go I go deep into that, um, I will be making sure that I'll add the links of your um, book in the description of this episode. And okay. then what I usually do is when I uh, feature an author on our podcast, I also put their book on our Facebook group page. So I make it like the book of the week. Okay, cool. So try okay. to try to promote, promote uh, these authors and get, you know, hopefully they get some sales uh, yeah. because it's very good content that people need. Uh, the reason why and I can't remember, I have to play this back to remember what you what you said to exactly that triggered me. But you made me think about how hindsight's 2020, right? So you always right. think back and you're like, okay, what could I have done that was a bit better? Or dang, man, that was really a, a, an interesting situation. And I think about, I, I spoke of my grandfather, but it actually goes back all the way to my great grandfather, who was a Rolling Stone. He's got, so uh, my father's name is Carl. My grandfather's name is Carl and my grandfather, Carl of Milton, he actually has like six or seven or eight siblings that's out there. And a, a couple others that we just found out they're in their seventies now. And, uh, and a lot of them are, uh, a lot of their names are Carl. They're all named Carl pretty much. So I guess wherever state he was in, he just, you know, named them Carl. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it was my great grandmother that brought them all together actually to all meet for the first time. Wow. Uh, maybe 30, we'll say 30, 35, 40 years ago. And it was, I could tell a lot of the family strongholds that we have started back with him. But also one thing that I noticed about him was that he was aware of what he was doing because he was actually taking the time to put together a family tree. Uh, he has one son named Carl Jr. who lives in Austin, Texas. 
and and uh right now Carl Jr. has all the the uh research my great great my great grandfather was doing on all his kids and what their their lineage and who they were connected to. And so he was aware he had his own issues, but he was aware of family and how important it was. And so um you know, I, I wish to, you know, I, I wish I was aware when, cause I think he died when I was about 10 years old, but there was a few conversations I wish I could have had with him and with my grandfather before they passed away as to figure out why you did the way you, you did the things that you did, because it, it will further highlight why I'm the way I am. Because my father is a piece of what my grandfather is, but I remember growing up and then from remembering how my father explains my grandfather i'm a lot like my, my like my grandfather actually mm -hmm. and so uh one thing that i want to make sure i, I uh, express in the book and i try to make sure i express my, my i will express to my son is a lot more transparency with either the issues i've had as being a man and how you can overcome these issues and not to come off like this uh invincible uh perfect figure Right. Because when obviously if I do fall and then in front of them, he's going to be like, but I thought you were perfect. Right, uh, right. I think there is strength in identifying your issues and then yeah. obviously figuring out how to overcome them. And, you know, obviously, you know, at, uh, you know, if your son is eight years old, you're not going to say yeah, I'm cheating on your mother right now currently and I'm working on it. Uh, there's, there's right. you know, there's, there's obviously some conversations to wait until your son is a particular age or kid is a particular age or maybe even adult. But to show some type of transparency, to show that hey, look, these are the these are the things I'm going through, and then this is how Daddy is fixing it, right? And so I want you to apply that to your life. Use your critical thinking skills, uh, because nobody is safe from uh, sin if you're religious or making mistakes. But everybody has the opportunity, you know, based you know of your mindset to uh, right your wrongs and to make provide the best opportunity for yourself and for your family. You know, man, <clears throat> listen to you talk. I did a lot of research on my parents and it blew me away, bro. I found out that, uh, well, I was very promiscuous, right? My, my father had a very uh, extreme personality. He would start something and do it and go, 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 go. And he would have me and my sister work, 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 work. But it made me stronger, it made me better. My mother had a very addictive personality. When she, start, when she did something, rather than smoking or drinking, she did it. So I'd had to use that and say, if I'm going to be successful, like I told you the conversation I had with the guy, David Hoople on the quarterback, said, man, you are just, you suck, blah, 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 blah. And once I put my mind to do something, I did it because I like, man, where am I getting these feelings from? So I had to think about who my mother was, what she did. Take her negative uh, addictions, ex, um, addictive, addictive personality and turn them to a positive. Take my father's extreme personality, negative wise, turn it to a positive. Work longer, work harder, but work better and work smarter and bring people along and help other people and give away my ideas. I also found that my father, my parents were married when they got divorced in 79. From 79 to 99, my father died in 99, but he had only been with two women in the span of 20 years. I wish I could say that now in 20 years, only two women. I'm beyond that number, bro, and I'm, I'm embarrassed about it. I have to live like that for the rest of my life. Um, my son's nobody, you know, and it's not good. So studying, studying my parents, like you study your father and grandfather, you'll find some things out that you may be doing and you may not be doing. You may find some things that you could be doing wrong or some things that you can correct or change. That's why I mentioned earlier, 
intergenerational transmission of family violence. We pass everything down the hill. It takes one person, one family member to stop that generation coming down the hill and change the direction of it and get it out of the family DNA, you know? So study your parents is very important. Study your grandfather is very important. Um, I get a lot of strength. I got a little, get a lot of energy from my parents, um, even though they're deceased. <clears throat> so just by thinking about what they used to do and how they used to talk, but I was emulating them sometimes in, in a negative way, then I had to switch it to a positive way. And it, it works for me, even to, and to this day. And we'll talk about that later on too. Uh, and so uh, with everything being said, uh, what do you consider your rich state of mind? What is your big why as to um, you've had a, a interesting life to where you you could have went completely left, man. You could have been you could have done completely different things, but you were able to turn around and be a CMC. Uh, yeah. So for those of you who don't know, that's Command Master Chief. Uh, so that's uh, one of the highest enlisted uh, roles you could be to where you are meant to be influential and you are meant to be a a beacon uh, uh, or a liaison for the, uh, the enlisted body, you know, it can go from 30 to 500 to 3000 sailors. Uh, and so this is something that Leon was doing, uh, which is no, you have to love what you're doing in order to do this job. I'll say that this is not something that was a check in a box. You have to be passionate about it uh, and you have to have integrity uh, and discipline. So uh, what, what was your big why as to um, why you change your life around? I agree with what you said. You have to love the job because I figured in money, I, as a CMC, I got five hours a day. Yeah. Right. So my biggest, I'm a, like I told you earlier, I'm the type of guy, I think differently. I think the opposite. I didn't realize I was doing this for a long time until I met Admiral Mewborn. I worked for him for 14 months. And every time we would bring an idea to him, he would go this way and we'll go, where did that come from? He was just thinking differently. You can think differently, Anthony. I can think differently. You can make things better, you make people better, make your life better. But everybody goes one direction. And when he goes over here, people don't like change, but the change is what made him a three-star admiral today, right? So to answer your question, everybody talks about your why. I read books about your why. It starts with your why. Not for me. It starts for me with my who, right? This is my mother, right? And I have a picture of my father and one with my kids. It's called a talisman, T-A-L-I-S-M-A-N. In 2000, when I made chief, our command master chief, Al McHugh said, you guys better make your dog on talisman. You better have it tomorrow. And I was like, what is that? A talisman, if you look it up, it's something that gives you energy. It's something that if you, when you, if you believe in it, it gives you energy, it gives you strength, it gives you power, right? Uh, in 2014, in 2013, I signed up for um, a, a, a marathon. I forgot about signing up for it. A year later, my friend calls. He said, Leon, the marathon is tomorrow. So I'm like, oh, and I couldn't give up. I couldn't quit. I had to go. I showed up and I, I read my, I don't go by your why, it's my who. My who is my mother, my father, my kids. So I dressed for my marathon. I put this on. And I took off. You know what I found out when I made this promise to my mother to, to finish that marathon? It hurt, but it didn't kill me. It hurt, but it didn't stop me. It hurt, but I didn't quit. I found out that I could run 21 miles without stopping. Never done that before in my life because I promised my mother that I would do it. I believe that my mother's spirit is with me. 
I believe that my father's spirit is, is with me. So I don't go by my why, I go by my who. And I keep a talisman around my neck at all times. And so my who is what I, why I do everything in life. You can't do something for yourself. It's not good enough. It's not strong enough. You can make a promise to yourself, Anthony, and say, you know what? I'm going to make a promise to myself. But if you fail, it hurts just a little bit. If you make a promise to yourself and your wife and your unborn child to do something, to start your book tomorrow night, to cut the grass, to be a better leader, if you tell your wife and your unborn child, rubbing your wife's stomach, hey, baby, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, you let them down, it hurts. That's the real pain. You let yourself down, it don't mean nothing. Nobody knows. But now you let your wife down, you let your unborn child down, you let your son down. If you tell your son, hey, this is what I'm going to do. So I don't go by my why, I go by my who. My talisman is my mother, my father, my kids. Um, and I believe in this spirit. I believe that they're around. So I can let myself down all day long. But letting them down, it's a whole different type of pain, bro. So my who is why, why I do what I do in everything in life. I thank you for explaining it like that. You're the first person to do that. And I, I can definitely see where you're coming from with that. Um, I draw a lot of energy from um, my families as well. I mean, that's the biggest reason as to why um, I kind of wanted to change um, some of the family um, strongholds that we had. Yeah. So thank you for uh, emphasizing on that one. I think, I think people needed to hear that one um, because it's, it's not just about for you. It's about for the people that um, either they rely on you or the, you know, the ones that you love. Yeah. Um, dang. Yeah, that was, that was a good one. So that's today's been, today's been kind of an emotional day for me uh, because I've been thinking about uh, in hindsight, I've been thinking about my, my tour on Truman. <clears throat> today we did like a going away, um, hail and bail uh, for mm -hmm. a couple of us that are leaving. And I was thinking about, you know, in these four years, um, did I grow? Um, who did I impact? And, you know, is there anything that I regret? And I think, I think I should do that more often than just, hey, what every tour, you know, I do reflect, but not, I, I felt like the four years that I, I was reflecting on, I should have probably broke it down probably quarterly. I should have reflected, okay, did I grow? Who did I impact? You know, so on and so forth. And so thank you for bringing that up uh, because I think that some of the listeners needed to hear that. I, I needed to hear that. And I do appreciate your time um, this evening too. I really, thanks for sharing your shorts, your story, uh, you in being so raw and honest and transparent about it uh, because somebody out there, um, what you were not embarrassed to speak on, some people may be, and maybe they needed to hear what you had to say in order to get through um, their yeah. own journey. Yeah, bro. I, I mean, I made a lot of mistakes and in, in I make mistakes now but I call it failing familiar. When I make a mistake, I go back to get familiar with it. And then I'll, I, I master it, you know? Um, I, I, I became comfortable with failing. Like I said, I stayed in first class for nine years. You know how embarrassing that is? And then when I made chief, I made senior chief the first time up. When I made senior, and I'm not bragging. When I made, when I, when it clicked, I woke up, when I started finding my who and not my why, when I made senior chief, they made seven out of 149. And I was on short duty as a quartermaster. When I made Master Chief, they made two. And I was uh, on the Kearsarge. They made two out of 19. I was the most junior one. And so getting promoted to me wasn't hard. When I became, <clears throat> I became Sir France Sailor of the Year, number one of 25,000. I went up for Atlantic Fleet, which is now US Fleet Forces. 
the top first four classes out of 100,000. I, I did it by one day I was on the ship, I found a magazine, I opened it up and I called those guys and I asked each one of them what they did. Yeah, I found them because it was an all hands magazine, all a Navy Times magazine, Navy Times or all hands, all hands. I found them and I said, what did you do? What did you do? What did you do? They got meritoriously promoted. And I, and I was already doing more than what they're doing. And I got one the Atlantic Fleet um, competition, but and that's a whole other story we'll talk later, but I didn't get it. So I was in the top four of 100,000 and it wasn't hard to get to that point. I was just doing three or four more things than the guy, the previous guys that won a year before me. I was doing four more things, four or five more things than they did. And it was like, boop, 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 boop. So I tell people it's not hard being successful. But thank you for having me, man. Anthony, I enjoyed it, man. It was um, very, very uh, deep for me. You know, I like to um, expound on things. I like to share ideas and talk. Oh, but my, my who, uh, likewise. My who. Likewise. Yeah. A beautiful picture, by the way. Thank you. But thank you for your time, man. I really appreciate it. All right, Anthony. Thanks. Take it easy, brother. Let me know if you need anything.